This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. Each week, a top nonfiction author is interviewed by a journalist, public policymaker, legislator, or others familiar with their work. We post the podcasts every Sunday. Subscribe and never miss an episode. This week, our guest is Eileen Zimmerman, author of the book Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. She's interviewed by Dr. Lena Wynn, former health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. It was such a pleasure to read your book and such an honor for me to be speaking with you today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You know, what what kept on going through my mind as I read your new book is what a hard book it must have been for you to write. You uncovered so many deep and extremely painful parts of your past and your families. Can you tell me more about your writing process and when and how you decided to go about writing this book. Sure. Well, I think the writing process started even before the book was um, was starting to come together. In 2017, I wrote a story for the New York Times about what happened to my ex-husband, Peter, and it was called The Lawyer, the Addict. And so I did a lot of research for that piece. I did about a year's worth of research and thinking about it and exploring it with my family, with my children, and seeing... Um, if it was okay with them to go ahead and tell the world this story and figure out why we were doing it and what it meant to us. And all of it was largely um, to make some kind of meaning out of something that felt almost arbitrary and, and shameful and we felt guilty about, and also to try to understand what was going on for Peter and understand what was going on in the legal profession in terms of substance use and depression and anxiety. So after that came out, Um, It surprisingly had a viral life and had millions of shares. And and I got a lot of feedback from readers, especially young lawyers who said, you know, I'm worried that I'm going to wind up like your ex-husband, who were facing a lot of the same issues, depression, anxiety, also using lots of different substances. Um, And so then I I also, at that point, had started thinking about a memoir and then decided that I um, would write one and I sold it to Random House. So that, I feel like my process started years before. And then um, I spent about another eight or nine months researching it, traveling, talking to high-end addictions treatment centers, talking to people um, that I met through uh, posting on online uh, discussion boards and, you know, the way a reporter will go about finding people that will speak to her. Um, And then I, I guess I wrote it over the course of about a year, then revised it over the course of about another year, another half year. So it took about two years from conception to Final draft. Well, you intersperse the discussions of your discovery about your ex-husband and his drug addiction with your discoveries about yourself. Early on in the book, you wrote, lots of things conspire to create or cut down someone's sense of their own worth. And for decades afterwards, I wasn't confident to follow my own intuition. Tell me more about what you meant by that. You know, I think in retrospect... I was questioning so many of the choices I made, you know, the choice to marry Peter, the choice to stay in the marriage, even though I was really unhappy and he was, um, the career choices I made, which were largely to follow Peter's around for his career and then kind of fit mine into it. Um, and, and why I never really, I didn't do much advocating for myself. I may have, and I didn't even do enough advocating, I think, for my kids, especially when he was sick 
with his addiction, and I didn't know it, but I certainly knew that his parenting was suffering and that he was absent or um, not acting in ways that were responsible. But I didn't, I think, because I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. I didn't have a great deal of self-esteem. And when I looked back over the course of my own life, I saw that I had done a lot of the same things my mother had done in her marriage. You know, when Peter and I split up, he was having an affair. I was 46. And I remember thinking, I'm the same age my mother was when my father left for the same reasons. So, you know, um, I think I just didn't, I, I didn't receive a lot of um, positive affirmation growing up. It was a different generation. I think my father was mostly concerned with he had three daughters kind of getting us married off, to be, to be honest. I think he loved us, but that was sort of the way it was. And he would say things to me growing up like, you know, it's a good thing you're smart because you're not that pretty. Or, you know, I think it's just he said what he was thinking, you know. Um, and I always felt like I was I was lucky to have kind of gotten Peter, to have gotten married to him. And I felt that way. And my father, uh, who was the other major male figure in my life, acted like I was lucky to, to get him. And I think... Um, I think all of those things. Also, growing up, I write in the book, I grew up in a town that was very Irish and Italian Catholic, and we were Jewish. My family kept kosher. I didn't look the same as the other girls. I was really underweight. I had very ethnic hair. I was like, you know, and I looked, I looked Jewish, and I felt like an outsider. And, um, and it, was, it was somewhat anti-Semitic there. I wrote that in seventh grade, someone painted Jew on my locker. So there were all these things that made me feel kind of like an outsider, you know, not as popular, as pretty, or whatever it was. I was funny. That's kind of how I got accepted. Um, and I think you grow up feeling sort of like you're constantly trying to get into the to the group that's in, and you're always a little bit on the periphery. And ultimately, I wound up marrying somebody that I felt I was lucky to get, um, and I didn't want to screw it up. And so I didn't advocate for myself or demand anything, and I followed him around. And I guess that's how I wound up <laughs> that passage in the book. And in fact, there was another part in the book where um, you were talking about how you were telling your father about about your engagement, and he said something to you that really surprised you. Yes, uh, we told him we were getting married, and he hugged Peter. And then Peter got up to go to the bathroom. We were at a restaurant having pizza, and my dad just looked at me and said, "Don't blow it." And um, I hadn't really thought about that much until after Peter died and after I started to write the memoir because. At first, I thought it was just going to be a book about, you know, kind of reporting and about what happened to Peter. But my editor said, no, you know, it needs to be a memoir and you need to be you know, kind of the emotional heart of the story. So I had to dig in a little bit to my own past. And looking back on that moment, I realized what a crummy thing that was to say to your daughter. And I, I look back and think, why didn't I stand up and say, like, be indignant and sort of say, no, why aren't you saying that to Peter? You know, why are you saying that to me? But instead, my mindset at that point was just to say, just to say, I won't, you know, to understand that, like, yeah, you know, I didn't want to blow it. Um, I think it was very indicative of my sense of self-worth at the time. Hmm. Some of the most striking parts of your book are when you talk about your ex-husband's behaviors. And you said, in hindsight, it's easy to see the signs of addiction, in real time, it's not. So true. Tell me more about that. Well, um, what I've learned is not only is that true, but that I think I came to the idea of addiction with my own implicit biases. I did not think that someone struggling with a drug addiction would look like Peter, would have 
be earning the salary he was earning, would have two advanced degrees, um, be a highly successful partner in a very prestigious Silicon Valley-based law firm. You know, to me, someone struggling with an addiction was also struggling with very bleak conditions in their life. Maybe they were homeless, or struggling with a mental illness that was untreated. You know, they were, you know, someone that I would see on the side of the road, living under a bridge, panhandling on the subway. And I was very wrong. Although addiction hits hard in those communities, there are also plenty of people at the top of the socioeconomic, you know, ladder struggling as well. And what I didn't know then was I hadn't really educated myself in the um, symptoms of drug addiction. I hadn't thought it would affect me or my family. So when Peter was clearly suffering from those, I attributed it to everything else. You know, uh, maybe he was psychotic. Maybe he had an eating disorder. Maybe he had um, an illness uh, that he didn't know about, like cancer. I had people ask me if he had AIDS. Nobody said, you know, do you think he has a drug addiction? None of us, not me. I never considered it, but he did have all the symptoms of it. And I just thought, oh, it's the flu. He's working too hard. He's not getting enough sleep, you know, all of those things. That's right. And there was, um, there were a lot of moments that were dedicated to this rationalization, which, of course, in retrospect, and for any of us who know individuals who have the disease of addiction, we understand it so deeply. You were talking about how Peter would say he was diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, that he was stressed out and at work. And, um, and every time he gave an explanation, I wonder what was going through your mind as you heard these explanations. You know, a part of me just thought he's lying, you know, because he was, you know, I just thought this, this can't be. For instance, there would be blatant lies like one time, and I think this is in the book, he was, he, it wasn't one time, he was actually several times, two hours or more late to pick up our son from high school. And this was before my son had his driver's license, so he had to wait for his dad. And it was one day a week, one night a week, and my son had cross-country practice, so he was already you know, at school at 5.30, which was the end of most people's work day. And Peter would sometimes not get there till 7.30 or 8, and my son would just, first of all, it was humiliating for a teenager to be at school in the dark alone, the only kid whose parent's not there. And he'd walk up the street to this Mexican place and just have dinner and eventually just wait for Peter. And I would say to Peter, why are you two hours late to get our son? And he'd say, well, there's traffic. But I was checking traffic in real time, and I saw that there was not two hours of traffic. He should have been there in half an hour. And yet, in my mind, I was thinking, well, you know, I don't know what his workday is like. You know, he is under a lot of pressure. He is a partner. There are clients that are very demanding. Maybe it's possible he doesn't want to tell me that, you know, something happened at work. A meeting ran over, you know, because he would always say, like, I have to work. There's a client emergency or if we couldn't reach him, I left my cell phone in my office and I had to run out to a meeting off, off site. Um, and so when he said there was traffic, I actually doubted my own, my own act, the accuracy of my own investigations. I thought, well, I saw that there was no traffic when I checked um, the app for that. But, you know, maybe there was an accident that didn't show up. Maybe he's right. I always kind of deferred to what he said and thought, you know, well, why would he be two hours late to pick up our son? He must, it must have been some work-related thing. I, I didn't attribute it to the fact that he was concealing something else. Hmm. You talked earlier about this kind of profound misconception and stigma that surrounds addiction. And one of them is about the societal understanding 
of what it means or what type of person gets this disease. And I actually thought it was such a, um, an interesting description when you were writing about your initial disbelief. Um, citing, mm. for example, that he's a lawyer. He's rich, you said. He lives in a house that costs $2 million. Can you go into a bit more detail about what your thinking was around the, your preconceptions of people who have addiction and what you then ended up um, finding out? So that ties back into my answer before about my implicit biases. I thought they were you know, homeless, mentally ill people. I thought it wasn't going to be uh, a rich white professional with 13 years of schooling and someone who had been a scientist. He had a master's in chemistry and who, you know, certainly knew what the chemicals that he wound up using would do to his brain and body and certainly understood addiction. Um, What I hadn't counted on, I think, was that there's also a lot of arrogance at that level. And I can imagine Peter thinking, I'll try this and see what it's like, and maybe it'll be fun, you know, but I'm not going to become addicted, you know, because I can control that. And um, so so when I was told, actually, we think he died of an overdose, um, it turned out that he died from an infection related to intravenous drug use. Um, it happens fairly commonly to IV drug abusers. Um, I just thought, no, you know, they must have gotten that wrong. That's impossible. I think... The biggest bias I had was that he was well-educated, and I thought, well, he he would know better, you know. But that's so classist and every other ist you can think of, because certainly even someone that has a high school education, uh, you know, can understand that addiction is a powerful thing. And, I mean, I don't think... um, I'm I'm actually in a graduate program for social work now, and my my first year's um, fieldwork was at a clinic where people were struggling with addiction, and most of those people were homeless or they had... Um, some many had HIV or were struggling with other mental health issues, but they all the ones that were active users, even though they were on methadone. I never met a client that didn't understand addiction was a risk, that there was a risk of this, or under, understood that they were suffering from this disease. And so, I don't know why I thought somehow Peter's education would be protective, or that his income would be protective. I think I also thought. He can have anything he wants. Like, why would he choose that? You know, it just felt like someone with all of these resources available to them, as well as a good education, wouldn't wouldn't make that choice. Um, so I didn't. I think I didn't really understand how hard it is to fight addiction, how quickly people become addicted, and how um, education, income, privilege is not going to inoculate you against it. Which is something that I now understand very well. That's right, that there is no face of addiction um, that you can't tell by looking at somebody if they are at risk or if they, if they have an addiction or are in recovery. Right. Um, and one of the issues that I've dealt with in Baltimore as the previous health commissioner here is there have been a number of people who have said, well, why do we now say that addiction is a public health issue? There have been people in our city who've been dying from the heroin epidemic, the crack epidemic for decades. Right. And there is this resistance to, to, to thinking, well, now that the face of addiction is changing and we're recognizing that it's not just poor black and brown people in the inner city who are dying, now we care. Right. And I find this very difficult to wrestle with because on the one hand, we do want to address the disease of addiction and I'm glad that there's now attention to it. But it also is true that there's now attention to it in part because of the fact that 
the face of addiction is changing to white, wealthier, the people who we nor- normally might not expect. But that's who is affected now. That is so true, and I and I feel I feel a lot of guilt and shame in the fact that it I didn't even recognize. I mean, all of a sudden now it's an emergency because it's happening in my life, which seems completely unfair because for black and brown communities and people of color in the city and lower in, in your city and in many cities across America, and in uh, for people that are in the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. This has been an emergency for decades. You're right. And it feels so wrong that now that it's more of a, you know, quote unquote, white problem, now we're all talking about it. It feels so wrong um, on so many levels. And, but I guess, as you say, you know, it is getting attention. And so hopefully the people that are getting help are not just white people or white wealthy people. It's every every person that's struggling with the disease at all levels. That's what that's certainly what I hope and what I hope will continue to happen and I think more attention on the problems of addiction and what underlies them is important, um, you know, across the spectrum of those that are affected. Um, it is it is kind of, um, I think it was rattling to me and the people that knew Peter because it was so unexpected. You know, like, it was like watching someone fall from this great height. And maybe that's just the height of the American dream. You know, he seemed to have everything, and yet... You know, dot, 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 he was putting needles in his arm. You know, like, I don't understand why, and I can't ask him. So in the book, I asked a lot of other professionals in recovery, you know, what made them go down that road, you know. And I, I, my, my guess now is that a lot of what underlies addiction um, for people that are wealthy or well-educated or seem to have everything, you know, we want in society that seems to make us think what we think of when we think of success those issues, depression, anxiety, maybe untreated and unaddressed other mental health issues, those underlie addiction in all populations. So um, from what I can tell as a journalist who researched this and someone now who's studying social work. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought you did, um, you you presented a, a really interesting analysis of why it is that people turn to addictive substances and behaviors. And I heard the phrase, and I believe you said some version of this, that addiction happens when tomorrow is no better than today. And you wrote something about how the people who are addicted, they run out of reasons not to try drugs. Yes, I think that might have been David Epstein. I might have his name wrong, but he was at the um, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, I think, which is a government agency. And I had interviewed him for the book, and I talked about what happened to Peter. And that's exactly what he said, sort of like when you are someone who is struggling, you're unhappy or you're depressed or you feel stagnant or just, you know, feeling a lot of anxiety or depression or whatever it is that's causing you discomfort. And you look around at the options available to you, and nothing seems better than where you're at. You often, he said, run out of excuses not to try drugs. And, and alcohol is included in that as well. That's a drug as well. Um, so I think that is true. I think in some ways people are at the top are feeling really trapped too. I think it's easier for me and other people to understand that feeling of being trapped when you have so limited resources, when you don't have financial resources, where you don't have the education to make other choices maybe, perhaps where you come from families that can't support you or that you have generations ahead of you that have also struggled with substance use disorders. But um, 
And so in that sense, I could almost understand that feeling of being trapped and where things look so bleak. But I think at the top of the professional and economic ladder, where you have lots of options and where you have the ability to go into a, a treatment facility at a really nice place or you have the ability to get psychological counseling, you can pay for it, you can you live in a beautiful place um, where there's, you know, it's safe and, you know, you have all the comforts that you can afford in life. It's harder to understand how someone there would also feel trapped and would also feel like they don't have a lot of options. But clearly that is is also happening. I grew up in a household that was very much affected by addiction. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, now that I'm a, and I, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why um, I uh, C-SPAN asked me to come and, and interview you. Um, your book just resonated so deeply with me on mm. a lot of levels as a professional who works in this field as well as um, as someone who has lived through, I think, many of the experiences that you've lived just at a different point in my life. Wow. And now that I'm a mother myself and I'm expecting my second child kind of any day now, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> um, I think a lot about what I experienced and how I would help my children understand the world if I were in the type of position that you were in. And I know that it was a dilemma for you to tell your children about the cause of their father's death and what he had been through, what you were uncovering. How did you come to this decision? That's such an interesting question. And I do think it's something, it's funny, the, some, a lot of the feedback that I've gotten from the book is, is often from parents who felt like that part of the book, how I handled um, my children's, um, letting them know what had happened to their father and their reaction afterwards and how I handled their reaction, that really um, spoke to them and also raised a lot of questions for them. I, um, I will say that Peter was so absent in the marriage and certainly when he became sick with um, a drug addiction that we didn't understand or know about, he, he was so kind of absent uh, for, for me as a parenting partner that um, when I was at the house and I was told by the medical examiner that Peter's death was not, as I thought, a heart attack from working too hard but was a drug overdose or related to a drug, a drug use, a drug habit, um, I, I mean, I felt like I don't know what to do. Like you're, you're, there's no way to prepare yourself as a mother or any, or a parent or a father. How are you going to tell your children that, that one of their parents has died? So for, for that alone, I just felt like, I, I don't know how to handle this. What do you do? Um, and I felt like I, you know, I didn't have a partner to turn to obviously in that case because he had died, but I had been making a lot of decisions without his help anyway. Um, so I turned to the people around me at the house, and one of them was the medical examiner, and then there were two women that volunteered with the uh, San Diego Police Department who had been emergency room nurses who were retired and now acted as kind of grief counselors in situations like this. And I asked them, basically, what would you do? You know, I even asked the medical examiner, do you have children? And when she said yes, I said, what, what should I do? And she said, I would tell them the truth. And the grief counselors also, who had, had seen plenty of death and destruction in their careers, um, told me they thought it was a good idea. And the truth, I mean, I think as a journalist, I really believe in the truth. And it can be very freeing and very liberating. I mean, we had been so lied to for so long by this man in our lives that I felt like enough. You know, it just felt right to just say, like, this is actually what happened. And then when I did, it 
it was so clearly the right thing to do because my kids were visibly relieved. I think up until that point, um, if you read the book, you'll know that they had seen their dad two days before he died, and he was very, very sick, and they could not get him to go to the hospital. And they were hurt and angry, and I think when they found out that he had died, they felt enormously guilty and responsible for that death. So explaining to them, no, you know, you couldn't have saved him, I think was a huge relief for them to understand that something well beyond their control was at play turned out to be the right decision. There is a lot of guilt as the survivor any time a loved one passes away, but I could imagine just if I were in the shoes of your children, how they might have felt, all these thoughts going through their head of, well, what could I have done differently? Um, should I have should I have forced him to go to the hospital? Exactly. But as you very well said, I mean, it's their father. I mean, he's an authority figure. And even if he were ill, he's still, I mean, he, he was stubborn. Um, he wouldn't have reacted well to that anyway. How did you reconcile with your own guilt um, throughout this entire process? You know, that's a great question. I didn't actually realize what I was feeling was survivor's guilt until I went through counseling afterwards because... Immediately after Peter's death, almost everything I did that might be remotely pleasant, and there weren't that many things that felt pleasant for a long time, like if I saw a beautiful sunset or I did something with one of our kids, I would think, I can't believe he's not seeing this. Like, I can't believe he's not here. And even at, like, school events during my son's senior year, I would find myself, like, checking over my shoulder because Peter would often make it, but he would always be late. You know, I was always late at work, and I would save him a seat at school events or meetings or things, and then we would text each other, and I'd say, you know, I'm third row down, two in. And I kept looking, and, like, and then I would, it would suddenly strike me, like, oh, he's not coming. Like, it, I just, I couldn't believe he wasn't going to see this. I, I still can't believe he's not going to see them grow into the people they are becoming, because he wanted that so badly, and I know that. Um, so I wound up feeling so guilty that I couldn't really enjoy anything as time went on with my children or even in my life because I felt so bad that he couldn't have that too. And then I understood that that was survivor's guilt, which is odd because it wasn't like the two of us went through like a discrete event. Like we weren't in like a car accident and I survived. Like we had two, we had two different trajectories, but we seemed to have both lived through his drug addiction just on different sides of it. And the other, and we came out the other end, and he didn't make it, and I did. And so I did. I felt so much guilt. And I think part of my processing of that was writing about it, writing about it for the New York Times, but, but definitely in the book, because I was so angry at Peter for, like, ditching us. You know, it just felt like, how could you make this choice? We're, we all need you. We're really depending on you. I was a writer. He was a partner in a law firm. You can imagine the disparity in our incomes. I mean, I really needed him, and his support and his income to live in San Diego, which is not a cheap city. And I needed, you know, I missed his advice from before he was addicted, before he was struggling with that, when he had a very different way of looking at um, a problem our kids might face. He was very scientific and logical and a lawyer. And so whereas I might have an emotional reaction to something, I could call him up and say, well, what do you think of this? What do you think we should do? And he usually had very reasoned and good advice. And I really, I missed all of that. So I was, I was angry, but then writing the memoir, I was able to remember things about our relationship early on that, you know, brought me a lot of pleasure or made me feel really wistful about him and, um, and enormously compassionate toward him. 
and help me um, kind of forgive myself, you know, for not saving him or not seeing it. Um, I was able to kind of do a lot of that work in the writing. And um, I, so I developed compassion for Peter and I was able to develop some compassion for myself, which I think I didn't have over the years and I didn't have right then. I was really hard on myself thinking, I can't believe I missed this. I can't believe I didn't call him on this or push him more. Why did I accept all his excuses? You know, so um, that's a long answer to the question, but I think the process of writing this memoir helped me to process all of that and, um, and, and feel less survivor's guilt and also a lot less anger toward Peter. Hmm. You have many striking lines in the book, and one of them that I had to stop and read several times hmm. out loud, too, is this one. I will have to be the widow even if I am no longer the wife. Right. So, um, well, I, um, I, I don't know if you're a wife, but if you are, if you are married and a wife, like, you know the, the feeling of responsibility you have toward your whole family, your kids and your spouse. Mm-hmm. You're kind of got each other's backs. Peter and I didn't really have the got each other's backs kind of marriage, which is probably why it ultimately ended. Um, it was more like a, we were in this, the trenches raising our kids, but like, you know, battling it out for who felt worse and who got less sleep and stuff. But I think um, I did take care of a lot of stuff for him as his wife. And even in divorce, I mean, when we were married, I would make his doctor's appointments because he was working all the time, bringing his dry cleaning, you know, make the meals. I did all the domestic stuff. And then we divorced, but I still kept kind of the family calendar to help. I would always remind him, don't forget, there's a cross-country meet today and there's a meeting with the guidance counselor tomorrow, you know. And I did it because he did have a really high-pressure job. I had more flexibility. And, you know, maybe, I don't know if that's the way other couples work it out, but it just seemed like that would work until our kids were grown. You know, like, and I didn't mind doing it because it was important to me that he make it to all of these events and things and be a part of that. And then after he died, there was no one really to do that, to kind of clean up his... I mean, he left a big mess. He hadn't filed his taxes in years. He, you know, he was struggling with this disease and just let everything go. That His house hadn't been maintained. It had to be fixed up to be sold. So um, I was executor, and part of that was um, also meant picking up his ashes um, after he was cremated and figuring out how we would make... Meaning out of that, um, my kids spread his ashes in the ocean, a part of the ocean he really loved, the beach there. But, um, you know, um, I mentioned this in another interview. You know, you go pick up someone's ashes, you know, your ex-husband's ashes from the crematorium. And, you know, I felt like a wife again, you know. And I felt like I was grieving the loss of this husband, this former partner, this ex-husband. Um, and it was such an odd position to be in. I also think I did it. I I felt like that because I felt like in some ways I let him down because I didn't recognize that he was struggling and I felt like I knew him so well I should have. But as someone who works in the field of addiction medicine, you also understand that people are profoundly changed by an addiction and he wasn't behaving as the man I thought I knew. And so there's all that. Um, But I did. I felt like I was going to, since I hadn't made it right while he was alive, there was a part of me that thought, I'm going to fix this now. I'm going to clean everything up. I'm going to settle your estate. I'm going to make sure the kids are okay. And I'm going to do it exactly right as a way to kind of make up to you what I didn't get right before. So I think there was some of that in this feeling that I was the wife again. Wow. And you mentioned, too, while you were going through his many effects and and executing these things that you became, as you said, both the archaeologist and the anthropologist. Right. Trying to, you, you know, you really, you 
you kind of get to know somebody all over again, but then you also see the ways in which they've changed since you've not been with them. Just the amount of stuff he accumulated after we split up was kind of astonishing. But I think, you know, maybe you, I mean, I think it's, we can certainly be addicted to many things. There's the drug addiction, but there's also addictions to shopping, to food, to, you know, exercise, all kinds of things. And I think he, he definitely was overly consumptive and maybe it was part of, part and parcel of the same thing. Maybe there was this discomfort, this emptiness, you know, that he was trying to fill. And one of the ways he tried to fill it was by buying a lot of stuff, having a very expensive house, having very expensive furniture and, and kitchenware and, you know, 15 pairs of running shoes in his closet. You know, like he had so much stuff. But he also had saved things over the years that I think I felt like I wrote in the book they were too, you know, they were too painful for him to throw out. They were still had a lot of meaning, but he didn't need to have them with him all the time. So they were kind of in a box at the bottom of the garage piles. And that was, you know, letters from me and um, mementos from our earlier relationship and things from his childhood, like his Eagle Scout patch and things like that. And, you know, his books from grad school and from law school. And I think let, he, he saved all his letters from law schools that were acceptances and the rejections and like, you know, his GPA, his, you know, all his transcripts. So it was a lot. It was like it was like putting together a puzzle and trying to figure out, well, what happened to you? What changed? Who were you then? Who are you now? And also creating a record for my children because, you know, they were 16 and 18 when he died and he'd been sick for for about a year and a half. So especially for my son, you know, he kind of he was going to need some of these artifacts to kind of remember his father and even get to know him. So I felt a huge responsibility to create a meaningful record of Peter's life for his kids. You also kept his phone. I and I, 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 I'm wondering if you can share with everyone about what you, what you saw on it. I think you know what, what I'm referring to. Yes. But it was certainly very striking to me what came across his phone. Right. So I had his phone initially um, because it was in his house and we had taken uh, valuable things out of there. The phone ultimately belonged to his law firm and I had to return it to them and they were eager to get it. Um, and I can understand why, because um, on it were, were um, a series of text messages going back months and months and months with his drug dealers, like, you know, arranging to get money basically meet people and pick up his drugs. And then there were also texts with different friends that he had that I didn't know, some I'm vaguely familiar with, making plans to go get high together or where they were going to go party. Um, and I, I could time the, I could see the texts, the dates and times of the texts, and I could match them to uh, testimony from my son when he would show up at his dad's house. This is after he could drive, and he was pretty sure that Peter had forgotten he was supposed to be there because he would be there on their night together and Peter would be gone and not show up until like two or three in the morning, long after my son had gone to bed, or there was no food in the house, there was nothing for dinner, there was no plan for him. Um, and I could see on Peter's phone those nights he was waiting around for people to show up with whatever he needed to get that night. And I could also see how much money he was withdrawing from ATMs. Um, from his phone, he would talk about the amount that was needed to pay for things, and the, the word for that was paper. So I was able to kind of discover all of this stuff about what was going on with him. Um, and he was still getting texts from dealers after he died. You know, they were trying to arrange times to sell and, and you know, give him what he needed. And he had some photos on there of him and various people high, getting high in the throes of their, you know, using. Um, 
And pictures of syringes. He had a pet mouse. He would pose the mouse by a syringe and take a picture. I, I don't know what that was about. I don't know what was happening him, for him cognitively by then, but um, he also had an infection at the time he wasn't aware of that, was, that had traveled to his brain, so I think it, he was being affected by that. So the phone was a very telling piece of evidence, um, which I, I did take photos of everything on it, so I had a record of it. I figured at some point I was going to need it either for my own ability to process what had happened in our lives and in his life, or if I had, had cho- chose to write about it in some way. So um, the phone was quite a thing. And you even at some point thought about doing something with these drug dealers. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if it was reporting them or texting them back and telling yeah. them what happened. <laughs> I know I was so angry that one guy was texting when I had the phone. He's like, it came in while I was holding the phone. Hey, bro, you dead? I haven't heard from you. And I so wanted to text back, like, hey, bro, I am dead, you know, and thanks to you and your, you know, friends. And I, I didn't, I did get very close to figuring out who they were. I was like, I had this whole spreadsheet with the phone numbers and, you know, where they were coming from and their names and their handles. Um, and then a good friend of mine that was an attorney, I said, well, I think, you know, the police are going to want this. And he said, I would not identify them. You know, you don't know that the police are going to do anything with this and you could be putting yourself and your family at risk. So... I had to let that go, but it was, you know, I, I think it was cathartic in some ways as I tried to puzzle out what had happened and what was going on. But, you know, at some point I had to let it go. Mm-hmm. And one of the parts of your processing, too, is specifically around lawyers. Right. Uh, I wasn't aware, I hadn't really thought about how prone people in different professions, specifically, I, I don't know that I ever thought about the legal profession as one that's particularly prone to drug addiction. Why, why, why is that? Well, I think, I think most of us didn't think there was drug addiction in the legal profession. I think we all have, a, most of us have a picture of a lawyer with a drink in his hand or her hand. And I mean, I think the stereotype of the alcoholic lawyer is, you know, one that's been around for a long time and there's a ton of alcohol abuse in the legal profession. But um, about six months after Peter died, the American Bar Association and Hazelden Betty Ford, the treatment center, um, came out with this landmark study, a survey of 13,000 lawyers across the country, um, and asked them about substance use and abuse and mental health. And the striking thing about that survey was that um, there was very high levels of drinking and there were high levels of anxiety and depression. But about three quarters of attorneys skipped over the questions on drug abuse. You know, they, they didn't even answer it. They acted like it, the questions weren't there. So when I was researching my story for the New York Times, I called the lead investigator on the study. His name is Patrick Krill. And he's now has his own consulting firm t- that works with le- uh, law firms to help them address mental health and substance use issues. And I said, do you think there's just that, you know, Peter was kind of a one-off and there really isn't any drug use or abuse in the legal profession. And he said, no, I think 75% of the lawyers skipped it because they were afraid to answer. And, you know, this is a group of professionals that are, you know, they're used to kind of looking for problems. They are very suspicious. They're not particularly trusting. And and that's part of their legal training. So, you know, they weren't going to answer the questions, even on an anonymous survey. They probably did not believe it was either truly anonymous or somehow they could be found out. So they didn't answer um, and so when I started investigating further, I found that there was a, there was quite a bit of substance use, at least in among the um, in the research I did. And some of it was prescribed. Some of it was not prescribed. Um, some of it was combined with alcohol use. Some of it was to make the alcohol use less apparent, apparently using cocaine 
if you are suffering from symptoms symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, they can really make those symptoms much better and make you much more alert and um, with it at, at the office. And so what I found was that there was a lot of substance use and a lot of what was underlying it was unhappiness, a lot of lawyer unhappiness and anxiety. And in fact, American Lawyer Magazine just released their, their this year's 2020 survey of lawyer mental health and well-being. And they found that I think uh, the question asked lawyers, do you think that the profession contributes to, um, you know, whatever is ailing them? And they, 75% said yes, they thought it contributed to their levels of stress and anxiety and depression and all of that. So uh, it's a pervasive problem. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, the multiple drugs that you mentioned, the multiple levels of, of addiction that you mentioned, we see to be so common too. Um, when we look at the autopsy data, medical examiner data, we mm-hmm. find that cases of overdose typically don't just involve one drug. It's not that someone only uses heroin. They also use stimulants in addition to heroin and other opioids. Um, sometimes there are drugs that are mixed in with each other. And I think um, what you said about the lawyers and that kind of anxiety um, and the drive for achieving more or right. staying awake and just being more. I think I could see how one feeds into the other, that it's all covering for something that's underlying. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I, did, I did talk to a lot of lawyers, and there's, I was very surprised at the levels of anxiety. And a lot of that anxiety is about there's an overwhelming amount of work. They have partners that they work for that are sometimes somewhat abusive to them. You know, I think probably because the partners had to go through it, it's kind of this weird hazing um, I don't know how prevalent that continues to be, but these lawyers that I talked to, many of them were in their 30s or early 40s, so they were still kind of coming up toward partnership, hoping they would become partners. And they were enormously stressed out, and they almost all, to a one, also cited technology. And I think that is something that changed over the course of Peter's career trajectory. You know, when he started, um, he started, you know, at the turn of the century, you know, 1998, 1999. And um, smartphones weren't a part of the landscape, but certainly by the time he died, you know, if you're going to charge a client $600 an hour for your advice and guidance, you that client is going to expect you to be available 24-7. And these lawyers that I talked to felt very much that pressure. They felt that they are never off. There was never a time where they could just turn it off. They always had to be responsive to their phones because their billable hour rate was so high. And then the whole idea of billable hours is an enormous pressure operationally in firms. You have to bill every six minutes. You know, you're keeping track of your time constantly and you have to bill a lot of hours. So I think there's there's an enormous amount of pressure in the profession and that creates a lot of anxiety. And also there's a lack of autonomy, especially as an associate, because your schedule is not really your own. You're at the beck and call of clients and of, of the partners that you work for and the senior associates that you work for. And so a lot of these lawyers just felt like they could not control their own schedules. It made them very anxious. They were always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so um, a lot of them had problems with benzodiazepine addictions, which is typically anti-anxiety medication. You know, and if you take that with alcohol, that's not a very safe combination. Um, and, and, and they were taking stimulants like Adderall, Vyvanse, Concerta, less Ritalin, I heard less of, to try to make it able for them to pack more into a 10 or 12 hour day, which sounds kind of mind boggling to me, but it's how they felt or how they feel. Mm -hmm. 
And you mentioned technology also, and specifically, you wrote about young people and addiction. Right. Um, then, and the role of um, of technology and over medication of our children. You also gave some pretty frightening statistics. I thought about what's happening with our youth. Tell me more about that, and what do you think? What would you advise for parents to do? Well, you know, and obviously, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm you know, I, I'm not a professional in that area. But I will say. When I talk to addiction psychiatrists and therapists, what they said is that, um, especially parents, I think my generation of parents, as well as your generation of parents, or um, boomers, Gen X, and now older millennials who are becoming parents themselves, there is this tendency to see a, a child that is struggling, let's say, in school, or might have been, you know, feel like that you feel like your child is down or is uh, overly anxious, and maybe maybe that child would benefit from some medication to help them along with therapy. But a lot of the psychiatrists and the psychologists I talked to said the parents' first um, response is to ask if there's a pill, if there's some medication they can give their child, because it's quicker. And if you have, especially kids from upwardly mobile, affluent families where there's a lot of pressure in their high schools and middle schools to compete and achieve, you know, taking time to do psychotherapy or th those kinds of um, interventions, those take time. You know, they're not an overnight fix, whereas I think parents might believe, and perhaps mistakenly so, that if you give your child um, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication, you know, you'll see results quicker. And then if they want to, they can go back and do therapy. You know, um, this one guy that, uh, one gentleman that heads a high-end treatment center in Utah had said to me, he said, you know, there may be very valid reasons for prescribing uh, an antidepressant to, a, to an adolescent. He said, but, you know, there might be avenues to try first before that. You know, maybe it's a question of intervening for some social anxiety, or maybe what's going on is that the child feels or the adolescent feels a lot of pressure from parents or peers or the school, and that can be addressed in a different way. But there's this kind of quick fix mentality, I think, that's very American. You know, um, I interviewed for the book this guy that was very young and successful and had become a senior executive at a hedge fund in New York at a very young age. And he went to his doctor and he said he felt depressed because he'd achieved his goal and he felt kind of antsy and discontent. And, the, you know, he's, the doctor had suggested maybe some cognitive behavioral therapy. And he said, you know, can I just take a pill? And the doctor said, yeah, sure you can. He said, in fact, he asked him about his ability to focus. And this guy really wasn't having a problem. But the doctor said, you know, have you ever used Adderall in college? And he said, yeah, I used it. It was great for focus. And he said, well, I, I can give you some of that, too. <laughs> and now this guy is, you know, he's taking hundreds of milligrams of Adderall a day um, because he's developed a tolerance to it. And he is hyperproductive. He gets a lot done. But, you know, I think... Uh, in other ways, his life is not, you know, is not completely filled out. You know, he doesn't have a significant other. He doesn't have a lot of relationships with um, friends. He spends a lot of his time, you know, doing stuff for work or, um, you know, creating apps or following other kind of projects and technology, but not necessarily maybe developing meaningful relationships or, you know, doing more... Um, things that are that are slower i guess in life which would be like having coffee with somebody for a few hours or reading a book you know things like that he's he's really hyped up you know he's really wired and so he's doing lots of projects all at the same time mm -hmm. and that's the pill for every ill mentality that we're seeing i think there so. is a culture around that here right right um what's been the response to your book you know it's been for the most part, very 
Very positive and very gratifying. I would say a lot of people are sharing stories of their own um, experiences with addiction and alcoholism in their families with um, spouses and fathers and wives and mothers that were um, professionals that also struggled with addictions and were, you know, there was a lot of stigma and shame in the families. They did try to do things like treat it very privately. Um, and there's a lot of families that were really broken apart by it. And the stories are very heartbreaking. Um, but it's also really nice to have people reach out and connect because I felt very isolated when this happened to our family. And just to know that there are other people that kind of went through very similar things or are now struggling and going through stuff like that. You know, you can reach out and kind of be a support to each other. You know, like one person wrote me and said, you know, she felt like she was seen for the first time. Like, oh, you know, I recognize myself in this woman, which was me. And I felt the same way. Like, I feel like people are saying, you know, I see you. I, I understand what you went through. I, you know, I feel you. And there is something so powerful in that. It's really great. And I think, you know, probably the best thing is that We've started a conversation now in the workplace about mental health and well-being and substance use and abuse, and hopefully that will extend to graduate schools, law schools, high schools, you know, any places where there's a lot of competition and there's a lot of pressure to succeed and perform. You know, there also seems to be this willingness to try to hack oneself, if you will, um, for better performance and creativity and to and productivity and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. When other people have responded to your book, um, have they provided ideas too, as in policy ideas or legislative ideas or programs or other things that they think would be helpful in addressing addiction? I think not as high as the policy level. I mean, I have had people uh, write that they wish insurance covered more, and that is obviously a huge problem for people, especially people who don't have the resources maybe to afford inpatient treatment or they're not, you know, they fall through a crack insurance-wise, which I think affects a lot of people. It's expensive. Um, but more so than that, they they wish that the stigma that surrounds this, especially for professionals, would be lessened. Because uh, the idea is they're thinking that their loved one might have asked for help sooner before it was more serious or they may have saved their life. You know, I've, I've had people contact me whose families went bankrupt trying to deal with um, the fallout from the drug use because people spend a lot of money on drugs and then, you know... Uh, that reward system hijacks every other need. So suddenly they're not saving money for the college fund or retirement anymore. They're spending all their money trying to obtain the substance that's helping them not feel sick anymore. And so um, there's so many difficult consequences from it. I think that what I hear overwhelmingly is a desire to talk about it, to reduce the stigma. Someone asked me like, oh, you know, just recently I did a, a reading, a presentation somewhere and a mother in the audience had said, I wish there was an abridged version of this for high schoolers so they could see some of um, what you just talked about, that there's there's a lot of research about cannabis, for instance, being much stronger than it was in the 90s and how it is really a powerful psychoactive substance that now um, seems to be precipitating, for instance, more um, psychotic episodes in young people that are using it, um, that people that might be dis- predisposed to things like schizophrenia. I had one... Um, addiction therapists tell me, you know, if you are predisposed to this and you use cannabis regularly, it fast tracks you to it. So there's that. They're, and they're just worried about how it will defect the adolescent brain, things like that. And, you know, cannabis is increasingly becoming legalized recreationally, which is inevitably going to make it more available to younger people the way alcohol is. So there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of concerns, uh, you know, even with prescribed medication. What does it mean to be on an SSRI, let's say, for anti- like a, an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication? 
for a long period of time, which is not how it was originally conceived. It was conceived to be used in conjunction with cognitive behavioral therapy to change behaviors and help lower, you know, that background anxiety and depression and help people um, confront whatever issues were causing the problems. But now you have people that have been on these medications for over a decade, and we don't really know what that means. It could be perfectly safe, you know, but, but we don't know. We don't know what that means for society generally. So I think it raises a lot of questions. Um, and I think people are, you know, talking about those questions, but not necessarily making big policy recommendations. Well, I think the first step has to be changing the culture and shaping the conversation. And you've certainly done that with your article and then with the book also. I hope so. And I'm, <laughs> and, um, I, I wonder, looking back, um, what would you tell young Eileen? What would you tell her 10 years ago, 20 years ago, based on what you know now? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what wouldn't I tell her? Um, I would probably tell her to... <laughs> To have more confidence in herself. And I wish I could tell my 25-year-old self to advocate for, for herself more, to advocate for Eileen more often in her marriage, in her, in her other relationships, at work. You know, I wish I could have been more forthright with, um, with Peter as we were growing up together. You know, we met so young. Uh, we were 23. And um, I feel like in the early stages of our relationship, if I had kind of pushed back more, or demanded things like, you know, we're going to go to counseling, or we're going to learn how to communicate. I want you to see somebody. You seem depressed. Like, I wish I'd had the confidence and felt safe enough that I could do that without risking my relationship. But I didn't. I didn't feel like I had, I had the right to speak up for myself, for us as a, as a couple and as a family. So I would definitely give myself that advice um, to speak up. You had talked in your book about the reasons um, of why you may not have felt this way, that dealing with your childhood. You also mentioned the income disparity. Um, how would you overcome that in retrospect? I think I bought into this notion that because I didn't make the most money, I didn't have any power in my relationship. And I think that comes from what I saw in my parents' marriage. They had a very typical 1950s marriage. My mom was a stay-at-home mom who I think enjoyed working much more than she did raising kids. <laughs> you know, I think she was very depressed in a lot of ways as a mom. She was isolated. You know, she had a, she had a really interesting job before she, she got married. She was like a corporate travel agent for American Express, and she got to travel for free all over the world, and she was, you know, really beautiful and loved clothes and worked in Manhattan. And so I think her life felt really exciting. And then she was in the suburbs raising three girls, and my dad worked all the time, and he worked two jobs because we were financially insecure, it also gave him a very convenient cover story to have lots of affairs during his marriage. And um, I, I think that income disparity made my mother feel powerless, and that's what I saw. And ironically, in my marriage, I started to feel like all the power in my marriage was economic because any time I wanted more support from Peter, I would say, like, why are you in your office in the garage? He had a garage office all weekend. Why aren't you in here with us or helping make a meal or taking the kids to you know, playing with them or out for a play date, he would just say things like, well, somebody's got to pay the mortgage, you know. And even if that wasn't fair and maybe it wasn't even accurate because I was actually working and contributing, it's just that I was contributing on such a small scale compared to what he was providing that he wound up the person that had all the flexibility and the ability to say, I'm going to go here, I'm going to take a trip, I'm going to buy a new car. Like, I never got asked um, 
for my buy-in. I was just kind of told what was going to happen. And I should have said no. You know, I shouldn't have accepted that. But I think um, I think I was primed for that. I think I believed in the truth of that, that the economic power was the power in the relationship. And that even though I was doing 90% of the parenting and the household stuff and I was working, I didn't feel like I had the right or the power. I didn't have the leverage to say something. Hmm. And what's your life like now? You mentioned going to graduate school as uh, in social work. Right. What's, how did you decide on that? And what's, what's your life like? So um, after my son left for college, I sold my house in San Diego and I moved back to New York City, where I'm from, to be closer to my mom, who's older, and help my sister take care of her. And um, also to start a graduate program in social work. And um, I did that because I think... In the midst of everything that happened at Peter's house when we learned that he had died, and I think actually seeing this person that I knew so well dead, and I'd never seen a dead body, I'd never, I hadn't had any experience really with death up close like that. Even in the midst of my shock and everything else, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, this is going to happen to you too. You know, not like this, not at this age. But it made me think to myself, you better think about how you want the rest of your life to go. What do you want it to look like? And so at that point, I'd already been volunteering for years at um, a school for homeless children in San Diego, and I'd been very involved with issues of homelessness and poverty. I was always very kind of a political activist. So social work was something I was always interested in as a human being, and I felt like it was a natural thing to study so that I could, um, you know, be of service in some way, a little bit different than as a journalist. And write about different things. I had written a lot about business um, and technology and startups and entrepreneurships. Those had been kind of my beats for many years. And I was kind of burning out on it. And, um, and I felt like I needed, I needed and wanted to write about other issues, issues that felt more important to me and were more focused on kind of what it means to be a human being at this point in time in this society, in this world, and that kind of thing, which is, you know, what we all, I think, grapple with. Um, and so social work is both a way into that to, to examine those issues and also will allow me, I hope, to work with populations that are in need and feel, um, you know, that I'm doing some good in the world, too, and contributing in, a, in other ways, not just as a journalist. Well, it's been a real honor to have this conversation. I so enjoyed your beautifully written book, which I brought with me today so that I can show it here. Thank and, you. Um, so I just so appreciate your sharing your wisdom um, and your humanity with us on such an important topic to you personally, but to so many people around the country and the world. So really appreciate it again. And thank you, Eileen, for your thank time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards. Please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts.